The following live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati is presented by agamayoga.com. Namaste and good evening to all of you. Tonight in the satsang I'm going to continue with the description and the explanations given on the basis of Gyaranda Samhita. Um, we had a few satsangs consecrated last week to the various special events related to Easter and some of the issues that came together with those. Now I'm uh, having again a window of opportunity for returning to Geranda Samhita. In a few satsangs during the previous season and in few satsangs in this season, we are analyzing one of the most uh, precise texts of yoga, which speaks about yoga very much in the way in which we in Agama speak about yoga. It's a sort of uh, original yoga, authentic yoga. Modern yoga teachers have turned it a lot into fitness industry and um, into gymnastics. And I'm not saying it's bad that people do gymnastics or fitness, but then because of this they are sometimes coming with very weird concepts which do not exist today. In some Western yoga courses, people who want to study Hatha Yoga, they have to learn a lot of things about a concept, an alien concept to yoga, which is called alignment. And if you cannot elegantly speak about alignment, it's like you don't know about yoga. Gyaranda, in the 18th century, he doesn't say a word about alignment and he doesn't care about him, about it. For him, yoga is something else. And because of that, I, I just want to tell you these things, because uh, there, are, there is yoga and there is yoga, as you very well know, most of you. And also, um, therefore, Gyaranda Samhita represents the traditional street in yoga. Many people are asking me, Swami, where did you or your teachers or the teachers of your teachers, where did you get this kind of yoga? Because it's so rare and at the same time we say, well, shouldn't we do it that way or that way? That's where this kind of yoga comes from. This kind of yoga which we do in Agama, the general tantric yoga based on chakras, nadis, energy, states of consciousness, psychological abilities, and so on. This is all of it coming from Hatha Yoga Pradipika, Shiva Samhita, Geranda Samhita, and a few other texts which are the backbone of the Hatha Yoga tradition. Everything which is Hatha Yoga, Laya Yoga, Kundalini Yoga comes from these kinds of texts. And that's why I've been asked in the last season by advanced pupils to give a presentation of at least one of these texts. Maybe in time I'll have the time to present all three or four of them. And this is how we got to talk about Geranda Samhita. Geranda Samhita has approximately six, six chapters <coughs> consecrated to the spiritual education. And it's a dialogue between a big yogi called Geranda. That's why it's called the Samhita of Geranda. Geranda's Samhita, and uh, he talks with his disciple, imaginary or not, it doesn't matter, Chanda Kapali, and this dialogue is actually meant to be overheard by you, 
as the third person. You are the third person overhearing or overreading what Geranda once upon a time told to Chandakapali. This text, according to scholars, is written in about around the year 1800, so about the end of the 18th century. And uh, it is the newest of these Hatha Yoga texts, and because of this it has some advantages, because it is the one of the most polished texts. I'm not going to give you uh, the full uh, input again about this, another introduction. I am pretty much sure that the first lecture on Geranda Samhita, which contains all the introductory concepts, is uploaded on the Agama site or on YouTube, wherever they are, and you can listen to it, and uh, you can hear those things. We had finished last time when we spoke about Geranda Samhita, we had just about finished chapter number three, which was a very colorful and powerful chapter, which talked about Kundalini, because it talked about the mudras, and the mudras are very versatile and powerful techniques of yoga, and it ended, it was a chapter, a long chapter, the longest of Geranda Samhita, of a hundred shlokas, where Geranda concluded by saying, what more can I tell you? Like I told you about these extraordinary mudras, there is nothing in this earth mandala which cannot be, which equals the mudras in giving quick results. Just, uh, I just quoted this for warming up a little bit to the text. It's very interesting that uh, Geranda calls the earth a mandala, a mandala which uh, is usually meaning circle, and also mandala are the geometrical diagrams for meditation, especially in Tibet, but some in North India as well, and he calls it the earth mandala, which makes, uh, gives a very interesting line of thought as to the physical world as being a symbol of being one of many. The world is the earth mandala, the physical world, the sun and the solar system and the planet and the galaxies, they are the earth mandala. They are just a physical mandala and there are other mandalas, there are other lokas in this universe. And then in the lesson number four, the chapter four, but in Geranda Samhita they are called lessons because it's Geranda teaches his pupil. Geranda suddenly moves from the first chapter was consecrated to Kriya Yoga and Kriyas. The second chapter was consecrated to Asanas, postures from Hatha Yoga. The third chapter was consecrated to Mudras, which pushed things much further to Kundalini. And now, in lesson number four, he jumps directly to something which is pretty much in the mind directly. He jumps directly to Pratyahara. I anticipate by telling you that he will return in chapter number five, which is very soon, he will return to pranayama. And all those of you who remember the lecture from day three of our yoga courses here in Agama, you will remember that in the classical yoga of Patanjali, number, level number three is called asana, level number four is called pranayama, and level number five is called pratyahara, and then level number six, dharana, and so on and so forth. And therefore, in the yoga of Patanjali, Pratyahara is higher than Pranayama. Pratyahara comes after Pranayama. Funnily enough, here Geranda is putting them the other way around. 
which can mean that he didn't read carefully the Yoga Sutra or he maybe didn't read the Yoga Sutra at all because he is not a classical yogi according to the lineage of Yoga Sutra. He is a tantric yogi practicing Hatha Yoga and Kundalini Yoga and simply Yoga Sutra might not have been a text which his teacher owned or taught and therefore he is simply not interested in the order according to Patanjali which shows that the order according to Patanjali is challengeable. It can also mean that uh, he was a bit messy and he chose to teach one before the other because he thought it won't make such a huge difference. Therefore, uh, one way or the other, point is that after the mudras, he jumps directly to Pratyahara, and then in chapter number 5 he comes back, back according to Patanjali's classical system, he comes back to Pranayama. There are many other questionable things, because if I would have written this text, I would have definitely placed Pranayama as chapter number 3 and Mudras as chapter number 4. Why? Because the so-called Mudras, they contain a lot of Pranayama included in them. By definition, most of the Mudras of Kundalini Yoga, they contain Pranayama. So, how do you teach Mahamudra and Viparita Karani when you actually didn't yet teach Pranayama? So the order seems to be a little bit not scientific. It doesn't mean that Geranda doesn't know what he's talking about. He might even have garbled the order of the chapters on purpose so that only the pupils in yoga that he educated personally would know what the actual sequence is of learning. Fact is that he has a bit of a funny order. But in this funny order, this chapter number four is outstanding. This chapter number four is outstanding for a very simple reason. Almost nobody in yoga speaks about Pratyahara. Although Pratyahara is one of the eight Angas of yoga, nevertheless, most yoga teachers find it so dull and flat of a subject that they don't even mention it. They mention it passingly. But they, and if you ask them, how do you do Pratyahara? They say, oh, you just focus very intensely and then you don't feel anything, you don't hear anything, you don't like... Wait a second. Now you are solving level number five by level number six or something. is. That's not a straight answer. The truth is that very few schools and teachers speak uh, extensively about Pratyahara. For those of you who don't remember the third day lecture in Agama here, Pratyahara means isolation of the senses. It means that when you do yoga, you don't hear, you don't see, you don't feel, you don't taste, you don't smell, because all your attention is placed on your prana, on your chakras, on your nadis, and you don't have attention to spare for external things. Pratyahara, at the least, it means a great focusing with interiorization on your energy and on the process which is happening in your body and you leave all distractions outside. And um, this, of course, is the place where deep levels of yoga separate from superficial ones. You can see people doing their jogging or people doing their yoga with their headphones on and probably Madonna or Lady Gaga is singing in those headphones and so on. 
And like that's not pratyahara. Pratyahara means that you have to do yoga in silence, in isolation, in peace, precisely because your mental monkey is a very sympathetic animal which by sympathy and resonance immediately gets attracted and distracted and de-focused de, uh, by a lot of things. So you need to be as focused as you can during your yoga practice. And um, Pratyahara is exactly this break point. If you do yoga and in your yoga practice you have Pratyahara, then you are not distracted and totally focused on the external things. If you do not have Pratyahara, then your yoga practice is just like a public activity where you are constantly receiving a hundred inputs from a hundred directions and you are allowing yourself excited and disturbed by those. Because of this, I can tell you from my personal experience that, from my personal reading or general knowledge, that Pratyahara is very seldom explained or discussed. Geranda is, and Geranda Samhita is one of the few texts where this is approached hands-on. Like here is a yoga teacher, a great yoga master of the tradition, who gives us something about Pratyahara. It's true. This is the shortest chapter in the book. It has 18 shlokas and probably we're going to finish it tonight. But still, somebody had the, the pertinency to actually talk a little bit about Pratyahara and give you a few ideas about what it is. And remember, Pratyahara is where yoga becomes internalized, focused, and all that. So let's see what Geranda had to say in the chapter about Pratyahara. Geranda said, starts the fourth chapter, Now I shall tell you of the excellent Pratyahara. He calls it excellent. The word used in Sanskrit is para something, because it's like, he says, this Pratyahara is really good. By knowledge of which all inferior passions like lust, the Sanskrit word used for it is kama, and so on, are destroyed. Aha! So here he tells me something very important. What's the function of Pratyahara? He said the function of the asanas are to get inner strength. The function of the mudras are to get stability. The function of the kriyas are to get purification. What's the function of Pratyahara? Here is the excellent Pratyahara by knowledge of which, not theoretical knowledge, but practical knowledge of which, all inferior passions are destroyed. Some of you are no more knowledgeable of the chakras than the others, and you know, this is one of the problems of the human being. Like, why did Walter not finish his yoga education? Why did Darth Vader did not become a real Jedi? Because he was disturbed by his inferior passions. There are a lot of passions or impurities, especially in Mulakhara, Svadhisthana and Manipura chakra. There is something in Anahata which can also be a disturbance, an agitation, a superficial agitation, which also can cause problems, but it is not a very harmful, destructive, 
terrible thing in the history of the earth. And people, because they are plagued by inferior passions, such as greed in Muladhara, fear in Muladhara, laziness in Muladhara, emotionalism in Svadhisthana, jealousy in Svadhisthana, confusion in Svadhisthana, unleashed imagination which takes over your reality, like you live in some phantasmagoric dream in Svadhisthana, power games in Manipura, anger in Manipura, hate in Manipura, egocentrism, exceeding selfishness in Manipura, versatility and treason in Manipura, and others, and perhaps even some of Anahata, again, not so pernicious, but of course still there, people, because of these, they fall off the path. Every month we get 50 to 100 people to join our first level intensive. How many people have been in Agama for 10 years and they have reached to the level of studying the Vijnana Bhairava Tantra and working every day on their crown chakra? Only a handful. Along the years, Agama must have touched the lives of definitely more than 10,000 people, probably more like 20. Where are those 20,000 people? There's a pyramid structure. 10,000 people have filled up the first, they have completed the first level. Maybe 3,000 have completed the second level. Maybe 1,000 have completed the third level. And it goes on like this. You got the point. Why does it go like this? Because if you'll ask people who are now in the third level or in the tenth level, or in the 25th level, they are going to say, the system is great, the yoga is great, yesterday I had an epiphany, I'm transforming constantly, I'm having personal development big time, I'm still getting a lot from this yoga, and I wonder why some people stop. And the answer of the yoga tradition is, some people stop because they don't have the karma to go through this, and they should have to fight their way through it. Because for some people, you have done yoga in a previous life, you have been generous about yoga in a previous life, and you taught it to other people, and when you are born in this life, you had a good karma, which at some point or another brought you back to yoga. There are people in this room who came to yoga just because they opened the door of our yoga hall, Silly them, they did not know what was coming to them. They just opened the door and poked their head in the first month for five minutes <clears throat> to hear what the heck is this Agama and what are these weird dudes talking about. And today, ten years later, they are still in Agama. Because this is karma. This is when your karma brings you to yoga. You had the karma to learn yoga. So how much effort did you really make? None. You were like pushed by the wind of God into a yoga hall and there you discovered it's intelligent, it's amazing, it's useful, it's efficient and it talks about amazing things that you always wanted to learn. Rather than learning some silly stuff in school, you would have preferred your school teachers to teach you this because it's such a precious knowledge. So this is when the karma is like wind in your sails. But sometimes... Maybe in your previous life you did two years of yoga. You helped a few people to open up to yoga. 
So you have this much karma for receiving yoga. And then when that karma is over, you find yourself in the fifth month of yoga and suddenly there is no more fuel. There is no more wind in your sails. It's like suddenly, it's like, ah, it's like it's finished. So what comes into action when you get, because everybody knows this, that people in yoga, sooner or later, they lose this beginner's enthusiasm. So what works when you don't have this beginning enthusiasm? The only thing which works is then your aspiration. Or if you are not doing spiritual yoga and you just want to get some paranormal powers or something, then the only thing which works is you're looking forward to those fruits, to those results, and your willpower. Exactly like people can work really hard to get a gold medal in the New York Marathon or in the Paris Marathon. In my opinion, I wouldn't make any effort to win the Paris Marathon. Because if, if somebody would offer me a magic power that I could win the Paris Marathon, I would shrug my shoulders and I would say that's nonsense. I'm simply not interested. I don't even bother to buy myself an airplane ticket to Paris, even if I knew that I could win the Paris Marathon. Because for me, the Paris Marathon is a total stupidity and a waste of human resources. No, that's me. No, I don't believe in these things. All this sport, to me, is opium for the masses. It's, the, it's part of the sentence of Nero, who said that to govern people, you have to give them bread and circus. To me, the Olympic Games and all the gazillions of dollars spent on sports and sports channels and so on, they are just opium for the masses and they are the circus to keep the sheep busy with who won the latest World Cup in football and all sorts of things like this. It has no meaning. But for some people, it can be important. And there are people who are so enthusiastic about winning a marathon. Maybe they are smarter than me. Maybe they see something which I don't see. I'm not saying I'm automatically right. I'm saying that's my vision about things. Maybe other people know things which I don't know. And for those people, if they train to win the marathon, they have a certain enthusiasm for it. They are looking forward to something. Personal victory, glory, money, whatever it will give to them. And therefore, people exert their willpower. It's the same with yoga. Yoga works for some of you automatically, like I don't even know why I'm doing yoga. It's like something brought me to yoga. And it's like it goes so easily. Like for me, yoga is a walk in the park. And I would do it forever and ever. I have bad news for you. Unless you are the reincarnation of Milarepa or Ramakrishna. And you came here already enlightened. And with the road to Nirvana cleared up 100%. And then it will be a walk in the park forever. Unless you are coming from there, there will come a bad, dark day when you will go like into a mini dark night of the soul because suddenly, although in your mind you'll know that yoga is amazing, there will be no more fuel. There will be no more gasoline in your tank for it. There will be like... That's when your karma is over and then you cannot rely on the wind of karma. Then the rest is you climbing the mountain of yoga with your willpower.
with your self-discipline. Like if you understood how good yoga is for you, and if you absorb that, and if you believe in that, then you are going to do whatever it takes. Spiritual practice is not always easy. Spiritual practice, part of it is your previous life karma, and part of it is you sweating for it, and having to do self-discipline and all those things. And that is why, remember thus, that uh, what I said before about the kind of effort that the human being has to put into this thing with yoga. So, when you have no more enthusiasm, then the passions are coming. If you didn't clear your Muladhara chakra, you come to the point where you say, I'm 40 years old, which is a well-known thing by psychologists, that that's when the midlife crisis hits really hard. And you say, I'm 40 years of age, and I don't have a child or two. I don't have a proper family. I don't have a million dollars in the bank to live out of the interest on those money. And I have been doing this bloody yoga until now. And now even yoga doesn't seem to flow so easily and funnily as it did. And that's when in the moment where your muladhara has greed, you are going to say, you know what, I'm going to get older, I'm going to get weaker, I'm going to get sicker, I definitely need some financial security, because everybody around me works for their financial security. And then your greed and your financial attachment and your fear, which are inferior passions, they are going to start poisoning your life every day. Swami Shivananda started yoga when he was 38 or something, or 36 or something like this. He never thought about this. Other and other yogis, like Ramakrishna when he was 50 years old, he was not thinking that he didn't have children and money and savings in a bank. He just went on like a madman. Milarepa never thought that he didn't have financial security. I have known monks, nuns, Buddhist people, Sufi people, Hindu people, Vedantic people, Yogic people, they were just like this. The older they got, the more aspiration they had, the more self-discipline they had, the more willpower they had, and the more they were grateful that they were on the path on which they were, and that they had a chance to reach divinity in this lifetime. But for the people who still have inferior passions, believe me, those inferior passions are like a herpes or like a zona zoster. When your immune system is weak one day because you had some negative emotions, depression, or you had some long airplane travel and you crossed too many time zones in one day, then suddenly you'll get your herpes or something bursting up. Why? Because the bastard is hiding in your tissues and is just waiting for a syncope for a hiatus of your immune system to strike in. That's how with the inferior emotions. The inferior emotions, if you did not destroy them, they are lurking in the dark. They are just waiting in your subconscious mind. And every time when you are at a crossroad, every time when you are subjected to a spiritual test, 
every time when you are in a moment of weakness, they poke their head up and they test you. They test your weakness or your strength. Tibetan Buddhists, Christian mystics, some of the tantrics of India and others, they even say these are not just emotions in your chakras, these emotions are empowered by demonic entities. They are nasty spirits out there who are watching you 24-7 trying to catch a moment of weakness. You sleep, they don't sleep. And if they are, they are there waiting, so you can't have a moment of weakness. At some point, a great fear is coming. You are going to feel it in your tissues, emotionally. A great fear is coming to you. And you are going to feel, my God, I haven't got money. I'm going to become a bum and sleep under a bridge, you know. I'm going to be a total loser. I did this yoga. I'm unrealistic completely and this and that. Be sure that according to Tibetan and Christian mysticism, this is just a demonic entity from hell or some purgatory who is simply trying to ruin your practice for a reason or another and is amplifying it to make it more colorful and to really give you this. I met people subjected to these kinds of tests. Suddenly they asked for a cigarette. They hadn't been smoking for 10 years. And they knew that cigarettes are bullshit. After you didn't smoke for 10 years, you know what cigarettes are, especially when you did years of yoga. Then they get into some terrible state. They say, do you have a cigarette? Like, you know, this is just the nicotine demon. Those of you who think that I am too colorful, please read the books of Carlos Castaneda. First time when Carlos Castaneda was given peyote containing mescaline by his uh, famous Don Juan, his guru, Don Juan told him clearly, when you, ate, when you take psychedelic substances, in those plants, there are some powerful plants such as peyote, cactus, and others which contain these powerful substances, not all, not all of them do, especially what's called in chemistry today the alkaloids. The alkaloids are the typical substances that give this effect. And Don Juan told him, chemists think that it's just a chemical effect on the brain, but we, the shamans, we tell you that there is a spirit of that plant, and by taking that plant, by the taking that substance, you open some doors, and that spirit can possess you. So when you are taking a psychedelic substance, you are possessed. Even the people that take ayahuasca in Brazil, they say in Portuguese, eu soy pegado. <clears throat> pegado means possessed in Portuguese. It means I am under the influence of this. The spirit has taken over me. This is a very alarming angle to think. Because many people, if they would think about it, they would say, wait, 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 wait. <coughs> Who is going to possess me? And for what reason? Like, to be possessed automatically sounds like a very dangerous idea because you are giving responsibility and power to someone else. And then, of course, <coughs> there are hippies who come and say, oh, don't worry. Mescalito is going to be nice to you. But actually, Don Juan has shown to Castaneda that it's not always the case, as it is illustrated in people having terrible infernal trips under the psychedelics, where you are taken in hell. 
basically. That's why it's not always positive, <coughs> it's not always kind, it's not always nice. And remember, it's not only the psychedelic plants that do that. Alcohol makes you be pegado. Nicotine is an alkaloid and it was used by the shamans of North and South America to get possessed. Coffeine is an alkaloid and it makes you possessed and dependent on coffeine. Very difficult to uh, resist to it. Uh, people fail to know that even cocoa contains a small amount of coffeine into it. So even chocolate is not completely innocent. And I'm not talking about coffee, chocolate. I'm talking about raw chocolate. It contains a bit of coffeine into it. And all these things which end in in, either you speak about morphine or heroin or cocaine, or you speak about uh, amphetamine, or you speak about dimethyltryptamine, or you speak about psilocybin, or you speak about mescaline, and all these in uh, type of substances, all the alkaloids, they produce possession. And remember, therefore, that the human being, when they open up, they can be under influence. But if you think that this influence is only when you take mescaline, you are wrong. Because it is even when you eat chocolate, it's there. And therefore, it is in many, many situations of life. And that's why the problem in spirituality is exactly this. What will you do? when you will be in a bad day and the dragon will stick its head up. The dragon being all the inferior passions that you have neglected. In yoga, we teach people ahimsa, non-violence. When you do the fourth level of agama, the teachers come again and they say, let's speak about ahimsa. Let's consecrate this month to ahimsa. Are there people who are in the 5th level or in the 15th level and who still did not sort out their problem with Ahimsa? Unfortunately, yes. Because teachers can do only as much as that. Talk, guide, supervise you on a tapas. But if you are a person who has been a soldier of fortune in your previous life and you participated to money for uh, to wars for money like a mercenary and you sold yourself and you killed 50 people for money or more then your ahimsa problem is actually quite big and just doing the fourth level of agama won't wipe out your problem with ahimsa and therefore these problems these lower passions these poisons from the low chakras they have to be approached by each and every one of you individually. But to approach them individually, you need something. You need to have the spirit of a fighter. Like you need to be a spiritual warrior. You need to wake up in the morning and look in the mirror and to say, how can I polish my diamond further today? Not a day should pass in my life with me working out of inertia mechanically and just doing yoga like a chore just because no do it with awareness this is my spiritual battle my diamond is flawed and dirty because of the many previous lives in which i did stupid things in this life i have to polish as much as i can 
preferably to perfection until I reach Buddhahood. People don't do this. People do the minimum necessity. Even in Agama, I often underline the thing that people come 8,000 kilometers and more to be in Kopangan and do yoga. They have yoga classes, which are eight classes per month, which in my opinion is little, like we can't give you more than two classes per week because we don't have enough yoga halls and teachers. We should build a compound of the side of the American Pentagon or something to, and have hundreds of teachers to be able to give you six classes per week. If I could, that's what I would do. Your fifth level of yoga or fourth or eighth, it would be six days per week. I would keep you busy six days per week because I know that many of you, when you go home, just suck your thumb and you don't do anything. You are just scratching your butt and you are not doing your practice. So for your own sake, I would like to be able to pay a teacher to be like a boot camp leader, to keep you in the hall six days per week for your own sake, for your own good. If I would have the money to have an ashram or an island, a yoga island somewhere, the condition of coming in my ashram or in the yoga island, it would be for you to practice four to eight hours of yoga per day under supervision, not in your own room, in a public place. I would be like the Spanish Inquisition. I would be like a boot camp leader. And if you don't want it, don't come to my ashram. It's as simple as that. Because if you come to my place, it's my responsibility to make you practice, to make you advance. Even when the demons want you to wake, to not wake up in the morning, somebody will wake up, will open your door at 6 o'clock in the morning and say, yoga time, morning kriyas time, you know? Like you would be, uh, even against your will, you would be made to practice yoga. Because that's why you are with me. You are with me for having uh, potluck meetings and so on. You could have done it in your own country. You didn't need to come all the way to Kopangan for this. Unfortunately, the divine will and the karma which I and you have for the time being about this makes that I don't have a million dollars or ten million dollars to buy an island or to build a big ashram in which you could uh, be there. I don't have that financial resonance. I am flabbergasted that so many gurus in this world can attract tons of money to them. And I somehow seem to be unworthy of it. And you are living in bungalows and you are living a tourist life, some of you, instead of working, living an ashram life. Because I am not a tourist tout. I did not invite you to Kopangan so that you can just have fun on the beach. I invited you to Kopangan so I can do seriously yoga with you day in and day out. You know, I want to do 24-7 yoga with you. So that's why you are here. As much as your knees can take it, as much as your stomach can take it, practice, practice, practice. That will give results. That will give efficiency. <clears throat> and as I said, I'm perfectly aware of this pyramid of selection because if people are not dealing with their inferior emotions, then one day you are going to be vulnerable. And in a certain way, you can come and ask me telepathically, 
Swami, why didn't you kick my ass harder when I was your disciple to rid me of my greed, to rid me of my violence, to rid me of this or of that, so that now I shouldn't have had this stupid test which is torturing me so much. That's why, remember that this first statement of Geranda is very powerful because he says it is Pratyahara which all by, the, by the practice of which all inferior passions like lust and others <coughs> are destroyed. You are going to say, Swami, how does this lust uh, fit with us being a tantric school? Every teacher is putting on their path their poisons and their benefits. It's normal that teachers that don't teach sexual tantra, and apparently Geranda was not very strong in sexual tantra, then if you can't do tantra, the only alternative is that you have to put sex on the blacklist. There is no middle thing in this. Swami Shivananda wrote a book about tantra, <clears throat> and then ten years later he became more and more Vedantic, and he started criticizing lust, sex, desire. He became even very nasty in language, describing any carnal attraction towards sex and things like this in absolutely disgusting terms to just make a point, you know, that he wanted you to be celibate and to do brahmacharya in the celibate way because he was not a tantric teacher for a variety of reasons. And therefore... The fact that Geranda mentions lust, either he is not tantric and then for him lust is like, if you don't do tantra, you should do celibacy. That's the big thing. You know, I have known Mahamandaleshwars, gurus, Tibetan lamas who were supposed, who didn't know anything about sexual tantra and they could not perform sexual continence and otherwise said they were incapable as man to make love without ejaculating and then they did sex anyway that's lust when it's not tantra the only other alternative is celibacy sex or lust without sexual continence that becomes just gratuitous lust therefore lust is condoned in tantra if it is integrated into a very strict steel like framework like we can allow you to play with your genitals if you do it in a strictly controlled way which means brahmacharya with continence otherwise i'm just giving you a free license for lust it's not the purpose of tantra to encourage lust for the sake of lust we say if you have lust we can teach you a way to channel it and to move the energy in Sahasrara. And then lust becomes from a poison a useful instrument. But only if it is done right. Therefore, of course, Geranda will put it there. It is also the point that maybe Geranda says, well, lust is lust, and practicing sexual tantra is a ritualistic, yogic, sadhana, it's a practice, and that cannot be qualified as lust. But fact is that Patanjali starts strong saying um, if you practice Pratyahara, you will be able to eliminate passions. Like what? You are 40 years old and you get your midlife crisis 
and then you are sitting there and saying, I don't have money, I must have money. When I don't have money, I feel so desperate. I'm going to get older and I don't have a retirement plan and blah, blah, blah. And you are just greedy and your mind says, don't do yoga, stop doing yoga, just go and hire yourself with Rockefeller or somebody and make a truckload of money. Go to New York Stock Exchange and try to make money if you are smart or something. No? And uh, basically, but, uh, I'm sorry, Geranda says, you can do Pratyahara, which means this idea is just a tormenting idea. If you could close your eyes and shut down the five senses, this idea will be left outside. Like you can surround yourself with a diamond cage and greed or lust or whatever is left outside of the cage. Pratyahara is like your diamond cage. It's like you can simply say, when I cannot cope with my jealousy, I can close my eyes and go in Sahasrara. And will the jealousy be solved? No, it will not but at least it will not torment me and it will not confuse me. There is always a way of getting rid of things by simply shutting them out. Like I don't want to deal with this. How long do you think you'll be able to do that? For the next 50 years, if necessary. All the time, all day long. Like let's see, my, my jealousy will keep knocking at my door. And every time, if my, if my jealousy torments me 10 times per day, Ten times per day I do Pratyahara. For the rest of my life. Do I win? Yes. Geranda and the classical yoga says that is a way. That's not what modern psychologists say. But Geranda will say the hell with psychology. Psychology is not a spiritual doctrine of self-transformation. It does not have a 5,000 year old history. It's not verified, it's just a smart modern thing, sometimes quite soulless and mechanical, and therefore the yogis would not trust in that method. But mind you, I'm not saying personally that psychology is useless. Sometimes great things can be done with psychology which will help you. But I remember having read the, a text from a Christian mystic, who was reproaching this, he was talking about the modern times, and one of his bitterness said, uh, you are, we are talking about this in the 20th century, the century where psychology replaced theology. Like, if your mother or father abused you as a child, theology says, forgive them 70 times 7 and go to God. Psychology says, take a pillow and think it's your mom and beat the hell out of it. Psychology has replaced theology. There is a theological solution, which is spiritual vertical, going to Sahasrara. And there are psychological solutions which may give you a temporary relief, but they do not guarantee that you are going to go to Nirvana. People don't get to Nirvana by psychology. People get to nirvana by meditating on Sahasrara and by theological solutions. It is Buddha who told us how you get to nirvana. It is uh, Rumi and it is Krishna and it is Ramakrishna and it is Jesus and it is the likes of them who told us how we get to nirvana. And they did not speak about it too much psychologically. 
they spoke about a direct cut. You know, like just forgive, love, serve, meditate, realize. You know, these are like they go for the concentrated, for the big guns and for the concentrated things. And that's why, um, remember, it's very important to understand this, that your spiritual life, either you stay here with me in Agama, or you go and visit other teachers, other lineages. Your spiritual life is a struggle with inferior passions. There will always be something in your lower chakras which has not been completely purified, some fear, some anger, some something, and that thing at the right time will stick its head out and will try to bite you and will try to drag you down. Therefore, Spirituality is often compared with a battle. It's a battlefield between the angels and the demons. Even if the angels and the demons are only creations of your mind, it's still a battlefield of what is superior, sattvic, bright, and what is inferior, dark, and evil in the human being. The yogis, as you can see, they are very clearly of the opinion that you should be completely merciless towards anything which is inferior. And if you cannot deal with it, at least you should leave it out. Keep it out, keep it out, keep it out, keep it out, until it dies of starvation by itself. This is the classical yoga approach of Patanjali. And there are some tantric extreme solutions in various tantric lineages from India and Tibet, but those are very, very peculiar. And they have to be done with great care in the physical presence of a guru, with supervision, with protection. So there are some alternatives, but those are the exception and not the rule. And continues Geranda by saying, through this process of pratyahara, of cutting off the mind or manas that is agitated and unstable by its own nature, here is a great yogi, saying the mind is agitated and unstable by its own nature like stop complaining that your mind is such a monkey everybody's mind is such a monkey the mind is unstable and agitated by its very nature the mind is bombarded constantly by things coming from the seven billion people that live on this planet and telepathically they share a collective subconscious mind with you the mind is bombarded by television, advertising, media, internet, by what you learned in school, in the family. In the, the mind is bombarded by influences from the planet. Like you go through some astrological time where the energy can be really, really bitter and hard. You know, like we had a period just passing by where there were some real hard astrological influences. You know, and nine, nine people out of ten, three weeks ago or whenever it was, they felt bad, pressed, depressed, mysteriously tested, and so on. No, like there can be a lot of things and our mind is skinless, it has no protection, it's exposed, and it is bombarded by a lot of things. So the mind is unstable, not because it should be, but because it's made of a form of matter which is extremely sensitive and extremely light and fast and it vibrates with everything and therefore Garanda says the mind that is agitated and unstable by its own nature becomes peaceful and perfectly controlled 
and eventually sinks into Atman. That's what Pratyahara is. That's why if you don't cross the borderline of Pratyahara, you'll never see the higher things. No, you do yoga and you keep your eyes open and you get distracted. No. Yoga has to be done with Pratyahara. You close your eyes, you close your ears and your mind which tends to be agitated, the more you shut out everything, you shut away everything, like I'm full of greed, I'm full of fear, I'm full of jealousy. Out! Out! Now I have two hours of yoga, I don't want to hear about it. Now I'm focusing on my longing for God. Now I'm focusing on my desire to open my third eye and see the past, the present and the future and to see people's auras and subtle energies. Either my purpose is a purely spiritual one or a paranormal one or something, in the moment when I want to do that thing, it's out. Of course the monkey mind doesn't like it because the monkey mind feels inspired to monkey all the time, to move all the time. But then you are telling it and, and Gyaranda says it so clearly. If you do the process of Pratyahara like cutting out garbage, then the mind becomes peaceful and perfectly controlled. Not in a day or two, but if you do it for three years, you notice a great progress. Here in Agama, when people do three weeks of yoga, they already notice some threshold. And when people do six weeks of yoga, it's like another threshold. And when you do more and more yoga, there are thresholds over thresholds where you feel, now I feel the energies more clearly, now I feel the chakras more clearly, now my power of concentration is a little bit better than it used, than it used to be three or six weeks ago, and so on and so forth. Therefore, not immediately, but by Pratyahara, the mind becomes peaceful, perfectly controlled, and when it is so, then it can sing into Atman. That's what Geranda says. If you have calmed down all this garbage, all this external disturbance, then you can sink into the Supreme Self. People say, Swami, but shouldn't we deal with the external world? Isn't this like an ostrich policy to put your head into the sand and to run constantly from the external world because it's a boogeyman? Yes, you should deal with the external world, but only after you reach enlightenment. There is a priority. And you have to prioritize. First of all, you first go and find your Atman. And then if you still have days left in your body, and ojas left in your body, and interest left in your body, come back to your body and to the world, and start dealing with the world from the position of Shiva. Start dealing with the jealousy and all this like a master, like the master of the universe. Stop being a weakling and fight with it when you can't fight with it. Find the most powerful ally. And the most powerful ally is your own supreme self. When you have found your higher self, then you can deal with a lot of things. Because believe me, jealousy compared with the supreme self it means nothing. Like you cannot make Ramana Maharishi jealous. 
because he always can close his eyes and go in his Atman. And then he says, yeah, what a joke. For him, everything is a joke. Greed is a joke. Fear is a joke. Jealousy is a joke. Confusion is a joke. Violence is a joke. Everything is a joke from the level of Ramana Maharishi because you have a great friend and that great friend is your own spiritual dimension, your own spiritual entity. So, as you can see, Garanda is a real centered yogi. He knows the purpose of Pratyahara is to calm down the mind and when you have calmed down the mind, you can find your spirit. It's very difficult to find your spirit with an agitated mind because the mind acts like a disturbing smoke screen which makes you not see the essential third shloka whenever and wherever the mind wanders away drawn by the sight by the eyes bring it back from there and withdraw it under the control of your own higher self or atman now he simply has uh, he is going to describe it by the sensations, but he gives the sight as the first. It's a psychologically known thing in modern research that most people uh, are dominantly visual and the sight is the sense which brings us about 85% of the information that we get from the surrounding reality. And therefore the sight is an excellent example of a dominant sense which can disturb us or not. So again, Garanda says, whenever and wherever the mind wanders away drawn by the sight, bring it back from there and withdraw it under the control of your own higher self. You see something which may be exciting, which by the way, in a million years, will not be exciting at all and nobody will remember about it. It is exciting only by an illusion. It's not really exciting. The fact that you are going to see, I don't know what, uh, even a UFO or something, most probably in a million years, it's going to be completely irrelevant. Therefore, from the standpoint of eternity, from the standpoint of God, nothing is so exciting as to disturb your ecstasy and your I am centeredness but because people have not tasted from that then they say eh, Swami what can you do we are just human yeah we get distracted I saw something and it really really took me off balance I saw somebody beating a dog or beating his own kid a yogi would say is this your problem of course, we can argue morally and ethically on this. But you can also say that some people say the world has its karma. I am going to God. People say, oh, that's a cowardice. Not really. That's the path of the jnana yogis and of these contemplative yogis who say first become a messiah and then you start doing messianic things. Don't start doing any messianic thing before you actually have become the Messiah. Then, you know, because people try to save dogs and whales and so on before actually having reached the level of Savior. First become a Savior like Tara and then you will exert your activity. 
I'm not saying it's bad to do compassionate work from time to time. But if the price is disturbing your spiritual activity, then you are going to die disturbed and with a lot of good karma in your pocket because you did good deeds, but you are not going to be enlightened. And believe me, when you will die, being enlightened is about a gazillion times more important than having done charitable acts in your life. That's why put things in the priority. It's not wrong to good do things, but if your eyes excite you too much and take you out of your peace, that shouldn't have happened. You shouldn't have allowed that to happen. That's why the principle is clear. Wherever and wherever the mind wanders away, drawn by the sight, for example, bring it back, close your eyes, go into yourself, and withdraw under the control of your own higher self or Atman. Fourth shloka, praise or insult, pleasant speech or frightening. Withdraw your mind from this and bring it under the control of the higher self. Now he moved to the ears. You may get shit through your ears. Not necessarily shit, exciting stuff. Like somebody tells you, you won the national lottery. Can you close your eyes and go in Samadhi? Then you are a yogi. Then you have control over your thing. Can you hear something very exciting and just shut it out for 12 hours or for 12 years? Can you? That's what Geranda is talking about. To have this power, so he says, either you get praise or insult, pleasant speech or frightening, withdraw your mind from this and bring it under the control of the higher self. Five, sensations of touch, of cold or heat. Withdraw your mind from them by Pratyahara and bring it under the control of Atman. Remember, not because they are bad, because these are created by Mother Nature. And Mother Nature is Shakti. And Shakti is not bad. Shakti is divine and she is our Cosmic Mother. But Shakti is like the examiner in a university. She is our tester and our examinator and she is making us see if we can cope with the Maya which Shakti has generated or we are still hypnotized and imprisoned by her. And that is why it doesn't say that actually the sensations of touch, of cold, they are disturbing. They are not disturbing for Ramakrishna. They are not disturbing for Milarepa. They are not disturbing for Jesus. They can take it. But they are disturbing if you put them before your enlightenment. I really met somebody and I only partly disagree because there is an other resonance to it. But I met somebody, it was a woman, who said uh, if, it's, if my room is messy, I cannot do my yoga and I cannot meditate. If a lightning was going to hurt you, to hit you in 30 minutes from now, would you prefer that the lightning catches you with your room clean or with your sahasrara open? It's the same. It's a priority. It's okay to clean your room. But to say that if my room is not clean, I cannot do my sahasrara meditation is a nonsense. It's putting the cart in front of the horses because your meditation is more important than the cleanliness of the room. Do the meditation so in case you die unexpectedly, which happens now and then, 
you're going to die with your meditation done, not with your room clean. Nobody's going to care a hundred years from now if you cleaned your room. But if you reach Samadhi, that will matter even a hundred years from now. Therefore, the problem is the priority. Here, Geranda is, Geranda is having a little bit of a Vedantic way of teaching, typical in India, and his values are there, and I, as a tantric teacher, am coming back onto his statements and I'm saying, don't think that he says it's wrong. It's wrong only if it takes you out of your center. If it takes you out of your centeredness, then yes, it's wrong. But if you can take the things a la milarepa, then nothing is wrong because nature is divine. Only nature simply says, can you cope with me? And if you don't cope with nature, nature is slowly, Kali is crushing you, killing you, and then you are reborn in 300 years again in a new body, and then you have one more try. And you get thousands of tries and tries and tries until at some point you will succeed. Therefore, nature is in a certain way very patient and almost merciless. Like it simply tests you, and if you don't pass the test, you go back to step one. And that's it. How many times? Until you succeed. Nature can wait forever, basically. And that's why, uh, remember, it is important in the beginning to have victory of your senses, and then you can cope with them. It's not that the senses are a problem. They are a problem only when they are a problem. Sweet smell or bad smell or any other odor that may distract the mind, bring it back under the control of the higher self. There are five shlokas which take every sense and they say the same thing. You are distracted by something you see. You are distracted by something you hear. You are distracted by something you feel. You are distracted by something you smell. And of course the next one will be by something which you taste. Can you shut them out? Just for the heck of it just to flex your muscle, just to verify that you have it, that you can do it. So some people say, oh, I cannot meditate because there is a bad smell. Somebody didn't wash themselves and stinks. What if you would be taken by the communists or some other dictatorship and you would be thrown in a foul prison where everything stinks? You will be near the toilet. And it stinks of shit all day long. You're going to say, I've been thrown in prison for the last 20 years of my life. I could have meditated like Nelson Mandela, but I did not because I was near the toilet and it stank too much. Learn to shut the stench out. The stench is not important. And you have to be able to deal with it. To be a yogi, first you have to reach a certain level of personal power of your mind for these things. Sweet as honey or pungent or bitter, if the mind is attracted there, bring it back under the control of Atman. Again and again the same thing. The ruler of your house is the supreme self. Test from time to time if you can control the five senses. Can you shut everything out and say stop? Just go inside, not for five seconds and then it obsessively comes back. No, for 50 minutes or something like, can you for a significant period of time can shut them out? 
that shows some degree of pratyahara. Then you can cross a certain threshold in your personal development. Eight, a yogin devoted to pratyahara systematically controls all his faculties of sound, sight, and so on, and makes those follow his mind. Again, it's black and white. This is perfectionistic, idealistic. Maybe even Milarepa could not hundred, hundred, hundred percent control things. Maybe Milarepa was up to 99%. 99% is good enough. Don't take it as black and white. It's just a certain threshold of controlling things. It's a huge difference between the person who cannot control their senses at all and knows that they are not allowed to drink Coca-Cola because they have a cancer and some alternative doctor told them cut it off with all this caffeine, sugar, drinks and so on. And then he goes, it's, he's thirsty, he passes by 7-Eleven, he sees a bottle of Coca-Cola and he says, the heck of it, I must have it. The heck with my cancer, the heck with the doctor. I, would, I prefer to die than not to drink a Coca-Cola right now. There are such people. There do exist such people. And this is what I'm talking about. There is a huge distance between becoming a total victim and a total weakling and being like Milarepa, or who are not 100%, but they are 95%, and 95% is good enough. So I'll take it with a pinch of salt because it's not black and white. Through supreme control or subjugation, it's a very powerful word, like you tame a wild horse, of the untamed senses, the yogin controls and is not controlled by those senses. The Zen masters have said, if you do not control your mind, it is your mind that controls you. There is no midpoint. You cannot sit on the midpoint of a seesaw. It's very difficult to find the. There will always be 51% or 49%. Therefore, either you are on one side of it or on the other. There is nobody who says, oh, I'm kind of 50. I kind of control my mind and my mind controls me sometimes. The yogis, the Zen masters have said, you control your mind or it controls you. In the same vein, Jesus said, if you are not with me, you are against me. People say, I don't care about Jesus. If you don't care about Jesus, Jesus says you are against him. It's as simple as that. Like people are giving themselves soothsaying in which they try to confuse things as much as possible because the demons don't want people to see something. Like when people say, oh, I don't believe in man, I don't believe in the devil, I believe in humans, like Jean-Paul Sartre. Any metaphysician will tell you Jean-Paul Sartre was a demonized man with satanistic tendencies. That's the metaphysical bitter truth. Humanism is a form of Luciferianism, and it's taught in all the universities of the world that that's the correct scientific attitude. Jesus says, if you are not with me, you are against me. There is no humanism. Humanism is a nice mask invented by the de demons so that you don't say, I'm satanic, because that would make you feel bad, and you say, I'm neither nor. There is no neither or nor. It's only an illusion in the minds of people. 
the seesaw tilt this way or that way. It doesn't have a resting position like this. That's only dynamic and temporary. The seesaw falls to the left or to the right always. And that's why here Geranda is very aware of this principle. He says, through supreme subjugation of the untamed senses, the yogin controls and is not controlled by those senses. If you don't control your senses, you are controlled by them. That's why I would like to see those of you that have the real spiritual quest in your veins, that you practice more of these things. No? Like take an apple, bite a bite of that apple, and then put it aside for 24 hours. No? Like learn to control yourself. Start having sex, make sex for 30 seconds, then pull out and stop. And simply say, no, not anymore for 24 hours. Why? Because you want to demonstrate to your higher self that you are not subjugated by those things. No, because otherwise you can say I'm in a tantric school and my fear is that actually I am an nymphomanic libertine or whatever, priapic libertine and I'm just, I just found an elegant excuse for just having sexual libertinism and that's why I'm checking it. I'm all the time challenging myself with food, with sex, with sights, with smell, with this and that. Take, you know, you cannot live in an uncomfortable place. For the heck of it, rent the most uncomfortable bungalow in this island and live in it for one month just to see if you can. Don't clean your bungalow for one month and live in dirt for one month just to see if you can still do yoga and if you can, or if you are distracted by childish kindergarten superficial things. There was one of the Mahasiddhas, one of the 84. Indo-Tibetan Mahasiddhas one of the Mahasiddhas took this to the point where he was eating fish gut he was living in Orissa on the shore of the sea and there the fishermen were catching fish and they were gutting the fish and throwing the gut in a pile in a bad smelling pile and then they were taking the fish to sell it in the market and this guy, I forgot his name he's one of the very first in the list of the 84 Mahasiddhas he simply took a tapas and he said if everything is God and if everything is Shiva, then I want to see it with my own eyes. It means the fish gut is also Shiva. And the fact that I reek and vomit when I get it close to my mouth and nose, it simply shows that I am possessed by aversion and attraction. I am still possessed by disgust and attraction. What kind of yogi am I when I am not having equanimity about things which are attractive and delicious and things which are disgusting and rejected. So he took it like a tapas. He ate, he was a vegetarian yogi. He started eating fish gut, disgusting fish gut, which is full of the poop of the fish and every like it is really bad. You know? And he ate it for years just because of this. That's pratyahara. If you can eat fish gut without wrinkling your nose, then you have pratyahara. Then you control your senses then they don't control you. That's why I would like to see those that have spiritual tendencies that you challenge yourself. Because there is the tendency that you are enthusiastic for three, four months in yoga and in tantra, and then you start going into a routine. You start going into a daily routine. 
and you forget to challenge yourself. You forget to say, I'm evolving, I have to evolve. What have I done today to be more than yesterday? You know, what, what progress have I acquired today? Yes, there is a silent progress which comes from your Hatha Yoga practice and from your Laya Yoga practice. Because daily practice, daily sadhana, of course it has an improving effect. But sometimes you may want to be a little bit more explicit. You may want to be a little bit more spectacular about this. And Pratyahara is a classical example. I have seen in my life many friends, colleagues, pupils practicing yoga. And some of them did not have enough good Pratyahara. And they were disturbed all the time by the five senses and the physical or subtle input coming from those five senses. Says Geranda in Shloka number 10. This is a part of Geranda Samhita which you are, if you are going to study the different editions of Geranda Samhita, you are not going to find it. The editions of Geranda Samhita are not identical. And there is just one edition of Geranda Samhita which contains this following eight shlokas which are very interesting. All the rest stops already before. But now there come some shlokas which I personally consider them a little bit more secret. This is the wall of silence. That every time when something has disappeared and you don't find it and then suddenly you find, wait a second, there is somewhere written and it's there, then you always know that this is some sensitive information which the wall of silence was trying to cut out. I want to bring it back for your sake and for the sake of the world to defeat this karmic tendency of the wall of silence and to keep this information in Geranda Samhita. In nine editions out of ten, this part is missing. You won't find it. Says Geranda, infirmities of the body are countered by pranayama. Sins or mental distortions are by dharana or concentration. Attachments or emotional distortions by pratyahara and lack of belief or agnosticism by dhyana. So beautiful. Listen to it again. Like now you see what yoga is. Like what does yoga do? Infirmities of the body are countered by pranayama. That's what pranayama is. Prana. If you have some disease, it is pranayama that will deal with it. Pranayama is the terminator. Pranayama is the powerful instrument. Remember about the disciple of Gorakshanath, who had no arms and no legs, and by legend, he grew them up again by pranayama non-stop for 12 years. And therefore, infirmities of the body are countered by pranayama. Any one of you has a disease which can be considered an infirmity of the body, please come to me on your next office hour with me and tell me that you are doing minimum two hours of pranayama every day for the last two months or two years. No? Because I hope that at least now you are getting the message loud and clear from Geranda. Geranda says when we sum down, when we boil down what yoga is made of, infirmities of the body 
<coughs> are countered by pranayama. Since by dharana, by mental concentration, don't we say that you focus on ajna chakra <coughs> and you can deal with karmic obstacles and so on? There it is. It's written between the lines. Garanda did not say what kind of dharana because he didn't even come to talk about dharana in the text. There will be more references to the mental things later. Right now he spoke about kriyas, asanas, mudras, pratyahara. And in the next chapter he will talk about the long-awaited pranayama. And then there are six chapters of all. So guess what he's talking about in the sixth chapter, right? So he did not speak about it, but he tells you. Here he finds a way to kind of draw a line and explain. And this is an invaluably beautiful shloka. Infirmities of the body countered by pranayama. Remember that whenever you get infirmities of the body. Mental distortions or sins by dharana. The most simple form of dharana is Shambhavi Mudra. The second simple, perhaps even more simple for some form of dharana is Trataka. Like you have problems with bad karma and sins and impurities of your mind. That's what Patan, uh, Geranda says. Do dharana every day, much, if you are confronted with impurities at that level. Attachments or emotional distortions are corrected by pratyahara. It's the universal problem in a tantra school. In the modern world, people have lost control of their emotion. If you would have been born in 1920, Nobody would have allowed you to express your emotions the way it is done today. The society was extremely controlled and people in public, they had to behave. Today they don't, very much. And thus, of course you do sometimes, like in an airplane, you are not supposed to shout at the stewardess because then the police will wait for you in the airport because in the airplane... It's a special concern about security and anybody who is a bit rough or noisy is going to get a real bad slap over their wrist, you know. So even today there are places where you have to bite your lip or else be taken by the police sooner or later. But in the old days, the whole society was like modern airplanes. Like everybody had to behave. And just people freaking out in public, it was considered extremely bad taste and extremely inappropriate. It is the poison that after the 60s and the 70s, people misunderstood that throwing religion to the dustbin and uh, becoming free means also to lose your decency and to become a chaotic person that can scream and laugh and do whatever things in public because it's part of your personal freedom. People think that freedom is the same thing with taking liberties about your emotions. It's not. Read some more philosophy and you'll see that liberty and freedom are not quite exactly the same thing. So, because of this, one of the huge problems which I as a teacher see all the time is emotional distortions and attachments. Like people are emotionally very much out of control. And Yaranda gives you a beautiful gift. He says, if you have problems with your emotions, do pratyahara, as just suggested. Shut out. 
shut out, shut down, shut down, close, and try to see how many hours you can stay in a state of isolation. No, because then you will notice that the external poisons diminish. If your fear was produced by a demon who was trying to make you afraid for the next 20 years of your life, and if that demon sees that you put a protection shell and you say, I'm going in Sahasrara, and every time you give me this shitty fear, I'm going to practice more on my Sahasrara, the demon is not going to like that because you are denying his very action. He's investing his own personal energy in trying to shock you, to rock you, and you, instead of getting rocked, you are closing your eyes and going in Sahasrara. Then the demon says, I'm putting my energy into making this guy practicing more yoga. That's not really what I wanted. It's exactly the opposite of the effect which I wanted. And therefore, even the demons will leave you alone. They will test you a few times, and then they will say, ah, forget about it. This one is a lost cause. No? This one, you can't get anything from this one, because as soon as you try something, it goes in Sahasrara. Fuck him. You know? It's like, let's try somebody who is more responsive. Let's try somebody who gives us more satisfaction for our actions, so that where we can get something. And that's why, remember, Pratyahara for emotional impurities. And lack of belief, translated in one edition as agnosticism, by dhyana or meditation. You didn't know this one either. If you meditate, you are going to open up. Meditate, meditate, meditate. Authentically, by good methods. Not by some new age, stupid, cretin method. By some methods verified by history. Do the Buddha method. Do Vipassana. Do Anapana. Do the Tantric Vipassana. Do the Aum Mantra meditation. Do Laya Yoga. Do other meditations which are there and which are good. And Garanda says meditation mysteriously will eliminate some causal impurities which blind you to the reality of the universe and they are going to take away your lack of belief. Belief is not only a religious factor. He doesn't say believe in God, although being Hindu, probably he thought about it and he meant it. But remember that the Buddhist practitioners in many Buddhist schools, especially the non-tantric one, they don't believe in any personal God and they don't think they need any personal God for their practice and they do meditation. But they still do have the belief that they can become immortal, that they can live forever spiritually, that they cannot lose continuity of consciousness, like they will preserve 100% the continuity of their consciousness when they sleep and when they die, and that they are going to reach nirvana and be in bliss and reach the Buddha nature forever. This belief is also very important, although it's not a belief in an old man with a beard who gives you grace from the clouds of the sky. So when you use the word belief, please be aware that belief is belief is belief, not only a theological thing. There are extremely healthy and powerful positive beliefs which are not purely religious and like theological and yet they are very good 
and very positive for the human being. So I hope you will remember, listen to this shloka, write it down, because here there were four very beautiful comments. 11. Just as great heat burns up impurities in metal, because if you melt metal, then every impurity usually comes to the surface. For example, if a metal has too much carbon in it, the carbon comes to the surface of the molten metal and starts burning and it is soon consumed. And then the metal is purified. So by, by making it liquid and red hot, you purify a metal that the old metallurgic type of uh, understanding. So just as great heat burns up impurities in metal, similarly impurities produced by the senses, because the senses do produce impurities, somebody steps on your toes and then you get very angry. That's an impurity produced by a mechanical action on your foot and some pain which you had. And then you say, how does he dare? How dares he? How, you know, like, that's an impurity, you know. Calm down. Chill out. You know? So, just as great heat burns, the impurities produced by the senses are burned up by the exercise below. Oh, it gives even an exercise. That's why these missing shlokas are so precious and that you can see how much strong and precise information they give. They give us informations about yoga in so many ways. So let's see what the exercise devised by Geranda and almost lost by many editions of the text. What is this? Because this gives us an exercise of Pratyahara, which are extremely rare in the yoga tradition. Twelve shloka start outlining it. Sit on a level ground and draw up both feet and hide them under the thighs so that the heels encircle the genitals. That's a very twisted way of describing cross-legged meditation positions in which one heel is coming on one side of your genitals and the other heel is coming on top so the heels encircle the genitals. It's just svastikasana or some other cross-legged such position of meditation. That's what he means in a very uh, artsy way really. That's the position. 13. Lift the face slightly. So it's done by a mudra. It's like you're stretching a little bit under here, which is an important factor. Lift the face slightly. Slightly separate the two rows of teeth. So the mouth little opens. You don't need to open the lips, because if you open the lips and the teeth, you're going to get a mosquito in your mouth. So you can keep your lips tight, but inside, if you look, right now, the first, my first position is with the teeth touching each other. And then, after a second, I'm going to separate them. I, my chin just moves down one centimeter. I separate them inside. My lips are still closed. That's also an interesting thing, which appears in other yoga texts. So basically, Geranda here describes more than a position of the body. He describes something which we could call a mudra, because it's an attitude. You are sitting in svastikasana or siddhasana or one of those, and then you are creating a special attitude. The face a little bit up, which stretches here, the chin a bit open, the mouth slightly, slightly open. Fix the gaze on the tip of the nose. 
and do not observe anything in any direction. Like it would be better to do it in front of a white wall so that you don't have things because when you look, if I look now at the tip of my nose, I can still see the lot of you because you are beyond my nose. And to not look at you because he says do not observe anything else. So not to observe you would take an additional power of concentration. I would have to imagine that I'm looking a million miles away and that you don't exist, you are just a shadow, and like defocus my eyes from this. That makes things more difficult. So I recommend that when you do this, you should do it in front of a white wall without spots or drawings or anything, so that you can go really deep. So face up, mouth slightly open, eyes on the tip of the nose, and then look away. Keep it like this, but you don't really look at the tip of the nose. You are just looking blank. Overcome 14. Overcome the inertia of the mind, tamas, with passion, rajas, and again this letter one with harmony or sattva. He knows a very important thing, which all those of you who practice trataka and other things know. At some point your eyes start getting tired and you start being tempted to close your eyes and doze. So that's what he speaks about when he says overcome the inertia, the tamas of the mind first of all with passion. Like sometimes I've seen usually Buddhist meditators doing Buddhist meditations with the eyes open like the Mahamudra of Tibet or some Zen meditations of Japan. And because when they do this, there is a tendency to doze. What they do is that they get very, like, angry. They put a lot of energy in their eyes and it's like, I'm going to drill a hole through the floor with my eyes, you know. And so they put Manipura in it. And this is overcoming the Tamas with at least some Rajas. It's not the highest form of meditation, but at least you don't fall asleep all day long. You prevent yourself from dozing in meditation. And then again, when you have reached control and you are not falling asleep anymore, with sattva. Then you can calm your eyes again, and not having them fierce or intense, you can calm them again and relax and go a million miles away. But in the beginning, Geranda warns you that there may be a tamasic stage of this practice, where you like tend to fall asleep and to lose the mental clarity. And his advice is, put some fire into it. Do it in a fiery way and the peace, the sattva will come later. It will be the next step. Thus pervaded by purity and filled up by perfect equanimity, the mind will be united to the prana when the senses are separated from their object. Basically, the mysterious explanation of this shloka, which he doesn't say clearly, and I'm going to give you a little bit of this as incentive for you to understand. He says this sleepiness which comes, it's because your awareness moves from the physical body and from the etheric body and the five senses, and you tend to go consciously in astral projection, not by moving, but local astral projection, like you simply shift 
to the astral body. Like if you do this kind of technologies, including in Trataka, sometimes you can find yourself sleeping lucidly. You are in the meditation, you are there, but actually it has become a lucid sleep and you are in the astral body and that's why you can see colors, feel energies and so on. Your body is like numb, like when you sleep, you don't really feel much your body and everything is focused in that yantra or in that dot or in that flame or whatever you do. Here is the tip of the nose in the case of this technique. And then basically you are like gone from the physical world. That's what he says. Thus pervaded by purity and filled up by perfect equanimity, you cross that bridge and the mind will be united to the prana, manomaya kosha, when the senses are separated from their object. You don't feel the five senses. You are having a mental representation like in the astral body. Are there subtle manifestations of the five bodies in the astral body? Uh, astral manifestation of the five senses in your astral body? Yes, but it's much easier to deal with them than to deal with all sorts of physical obstacles like this. And basically that's the secret. He says this is what Pratyahara is. Whenever something physical disturbs you, you go into that and then you are in the astral body and it's like you have fallen asleep and everything is shunned out and you are in your mind and all the senses are kept out you are you insulate yourself instantly shifting your attention from the physical to the astral this is the correct explanation of this secret process and he concludes in the last three shlokas which are given together the shlokas 16 17 and 18 which concludes this chapter he who thus thus by this exercise and by the principle exposed before he who thus totally withdraws his senses by pratyahara even as the turtle withdraws its limbs inside its shell this is a perennial metaphor in indian yoga tens of gurus have used this parable that pratyahara is like a turtle he who does this becomes self-composed like you have got a lot of solarity perceives the self or atman whoa that's a big one would you like to perceive your atman yay <laughs> then you have to do pratyahara practice pratyahara so it, it, the one who does this perceives the self and being fulfilled and pure externally and internally which means it will have effect on your brain hormones neurotransmitters because there is a reflection so being fulfilled and pure externally and internally due to pratyahara is free to practice the further levels of yoga and attain the immortal self basically Gyaranda says that's the turning point do yoga without pratyahara you are just an external monkey and you do a distracted form of yoga cross this bridge of pratyahara and learn to shut out to to close out to isolate things for a minute or for a hundred minutes or for a hundred thousand minutes and this is the beginning of your road towards the internal self towards the highest levels of yoga these 18 shlokas 
have concluded the shortest of the chapters of Geranda Samhita, just one satsang session consecrated to that, the fourth chapter, which was about Pratyahara, and the final strophe, which has no number, the colophon, simply tells us, thus ends the fourth lesson of the Geranda Samhita in the dialogue between Geranda and Chanda, called Pratyahara Prayoga of the Gatashta Yoga. Again, if you will listen to my other commentaries, uh, there is nothing mysterious. It's just a reminder. It's just like a colophon to make it crystal clear from which text this is, from which con context this is happening, and all that. There's nothing here which otherwise will help you technically, except like a nice ending of the chapter that like this was it. This is it. So this was the lesson four in the next um, satsang I'm going to move to the teachings which Geranda has to give about pranayama that chapter will be a bit longer and it is still full of amazing things where you can see how the true yoga used to be not the joke that it has become but yoga indeed with this, we have finished the satsang for tonight. Namaste to all of you. Thank you for joining us in this session. And I'll see you in our future Q&As and satsangs. With this, we have finished for tonight. This was a live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati. For more information, visit us on agamayoga.com or go directly to agamayoga.com slash downloads.